we're going to go back to Mark. We're getting close to the end. We're going to look at verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16, very end, last chapter. Mark 16, beginning in verse 9, and it says there now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, but neither believed they them. And afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And then he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. We're going to look in these last several verses here in Mark. If you want a title, taking notes, it'd be the Great Commission Part 1. So that means we're not going to be quite done with Mark this week, maybe next week. I do want to deal with something. I'm not going to get into a lot of detail. Hopefully this won't bore anybody. And I'm just going to deal with it briefly. But, you know, in case you haven't had the question put to you, there is a debate that is actually, it's fairly recent in church history. And that's whether the Gospel of Mark should end at verse 8 or whether it should end at verse 20. It's a fairly recent debate. Several of the commentaries that I've used going through Mark, they end their commentary at verse 8 and they have nothing else to say because that's where they think it should end because there's almost no modern conservative even evangelical scholars that accept verses 9 to 20 as being in the original or being authentic and they almost talk about it I went through this at the seminary they almost talk about anybody that would think that verses 9 to 20 should be there is kind of like it ought to be as obvious as the nose on your face that it shouldn't be there. And I'm like, well, it's just not quite that obvious to me. Does anyone in here have the NIV? Nobody? Or you just don't want to admit it? Well, anyways, (laughs) that's all right. Most modern versions put the longer ending in generally, but what they'll do is they'll put it in brackets. So if you do have an NIV or like me, I have one at home, (laughs) but It'll say this. This, this is, to me, is interesting what these different versions will. They'll put it in brackets, and then this is what they'll say about what they have in brackets. The NIV will say this. They'll say it says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. I have on the side of that, that is misleading. And I'll tell you why here in a minute. But they're saying the earliest manuscripts, they're making it sound like all the early manuscripts, the later ones don't have it. But the early ones, the ones we should believe, that's why to me it's a little misleading. And you'll see that. The ESV, and I like this translation, but the ESV says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. That's a little more truthful than the NIV. The NAU, which I like that translation too, but it says this, has it in brackets, and it says later manuscripts add verses 9 to 20. To me, that is like 
totally misleading. That's what I have written down here. That's totally misleading because they make it sound like all the early manuscripts, the ones we should really rely on, don't have it in there. And later on, they decided to add their in. I'm saying that's just not the facts. Honestly, that is not the facts. The New King James Version, I don't believe they bracket it. I know they don't in the King James. And here's what it says. Now, listen to this because I believe this is a truthful statement. They say verses 9 to 20 are bracketed in the NU. Whenever you see NU, you guys ever see that in your columns and you wonder what that means? There's two Greek where you're getting a Greek New Testament. And one's called the Nestle Oland and the other is the, um, uh, the U stands for something. I'm sorry, I should know. But both of those combined and they'll say, well, it's not in either one of those. And what those are are... These modern scholars have looked at all the different manuscripts and say, we think this should be in here, this shouldn't be in here, and all that. It's, it's not terrible, but that's what they've done. And that's where most of our newer translations come from, the NU. Anyways, it says verses 9 to 20 are bracketed in NU as not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. And that's truthful. There are two early manuscripts that are considered good manuscripts, but they're not considered perfect even by the ones that like them. And they're saying they're not in those, but they are in almost all other manuscripts, including early manuscripts, okay? So I don't want to get bogged down into a lot of tedious detail about whether the verses should be original because that could be a long boring discussion if you're interested and you're sitting in here and you've got some kind of interest in that which some people do i've got books i'd be glad to let you borrow or i can recommend a book or whatever but let me just briefly say this all of us in here we already know that there are none of the original manuscripts left all that we have left are copies of copies and what they've done is and there's nothing wrong with this so there's this Science, they call it. It's sort of a science and sort of an art, but it's the science of what's called textual criticism. And what they've done is they have categorized all the manuscripts we have in regions, basically. You have a Byzantine, which is where we get our King James region, a Western region, and a Alexandrian region. And some of them will say there's a Caesarean, that there's four of them. But basically what happens is you have, within a region, a manuscript will come up and you'll see a lot of similarities in all the manuscripts in the Byzantine. So if there's an error of any sort, it just stays in there. What I'm saying is you have these three different areas. One thing they'll use to decide whether a text, a verse, or whatever should be in the original is they'll compare all three. If they find one that's in all three, that generally solves the problem. If they see that it's just in the Byzantine, that raises a question of why isn't it in these other two strains of manuscripts. I don't know if you're following all that, but with this 9 through 20 verses in Mark, it is found across the board. It's in all three areas, the Byzantine, Western, and the Alexandrian-type manuscripts. And it's in early ones, too. That generally, that's the end of the discussion. That's what's known as external evidence. Looking at the actual manuscripts, the external evidence, where it's found, how many of them are found. Like I said, that generally would solve the problem. But the other thing, too, is many... Not all, but many of the early church fathers, they are before the time any manuscripts that we have were written, they talk about the Mark 16 long ending. And among them are Justin Martyr in 160 AD and Arrhenius in 184 AD. 
you'll run into somebody who's going to ask you about this if you haven't wondered yourself. What most of these scholars, what they base their decision that it shouldn't be in our Bibles is because of what they call internal evidence. And by the internal evidence, they're actually looking at the Greek text, that here's what we have in the Greek text. And they'll say, well, for one thing, it doesn't make sense if you look in verse 9, it says when Jesus was risen the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. They're like, okay, well, why is he bringing that back up in verse 9 when he's already said it, if you look in verse 1, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, brought sweet spices. They're saying it doesn't make sense that he's bringing that in twice when he's already referred to. I'm stunned. That's what they say. That's one of their things. The other thing is they'll say, well, there's a lot of words that are used in those verses 9 through 20 that Mark doesn't use anywhere else. And it's like, People have taken other sections of Mark and made the same point. To me, it's like, okay, so what? He's used a lot of words that he's used all over the place everywhere else in there, too. And the other thing is they'll say they think there is a style change in the way the Greek is written. But you know what? Those kinds of arguments are used by liberals from everything Moses has written, if you ever want to get into that stuff, to everything Paul has written. They'll say, well, he couldn't have written all of 2 Corinthians. There's a change of style, a change of this, a change of that. All I'm saying is they are weighing heavily in on that there's an internal problem with the way these last verses are compared to the rest of the gospel and mark it's very subjective it's very opinionated and i think that it that's exactly what it is it just is their opinion i mean that's as much as i really kind of want to get into this we had to pick places in the new testament where there's textual questions about whether something should be in there or not in this greek class i took i'm gonna pick this mark 16 and I had to write a 15-page paper on it, which means I had to read a lot of books that you wouldn't want to have to read concerning this whole thing. And I'll be honest with you, I went into this and I'm thinking, okay, these guys are conservative evangelical scholars. Why would they want to pull the wool over my eyes? And I went into it thinking, I just want to know what the truth is. So I'll read and listen to what they have to say. After I went through all this, and I'm honestly looking at what they're saying, and I'm listening to what they're telling me, these are the principles you apply to whether something should be in the text or not. And I'm like, if you guys use the principles that you say I should apply and that you apply to other places, I don't really understand what the problem is that these verses shouldn't be in here. The other thing is, it's like an argument that's just taken place in the last 150 years. Well, 150 years ago is when all this liberal theology came in, and they start questioning the miracles of the Bible. And I think there's a whole lot of people and a whole lot of modern scholars that really don't like the fact that it says, these signs shall follow them that believe. They speak with new tongues, and they lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Even the scholars that will say it shouldn't be there, when they look at what I talked about at first, the external evidence, they'll say, look, there's not a clear-cut case that it should be taken out just on the external evidence. They're saying just a good a case could be made that it should be kept in there. My whole thing is this. I'll grant you, you know, if I meet somebody and they want to, I'm not going to argue with somebody over this. I don't think it's worth arguing over because my whole thing would be this. I'll give you that it maybe shouldn't be in there, okay? I'll give you that. Why would that be? Does anyone know? There's not a thing that is taught there in Mark 16 and verses 17 through 18 that's not taught clearly elsewhere in the New Testament. Right. <laughs> the only one that you would say out of all of those is if they drink any deadly thing. We don't have a case of that, but we have a case of Paul picking up a snake. We got plenty of cases of people speaking in tongues all through the book of Acts. 
I'll give you that. I'm not going to get in an argument over that. It's not a heaven and hell issue. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I don't agree with it. And I don't think we as a church, trust me if you want to, if you disagree, that's fine. This has been a big verse in my family for all the years I've had kids and my wife. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. That's the verse that for me, I'm like, I can easily exercise faith in that. That is just so clear and straightforward like James 5 is to me that I lay hands on my children in his name. And he tells me if I do that and pray for them, they shall recover. Have you all recovered so far, Thomas? I think they're all recovered. Praise the Lord. I'm not giving it up. If anybody wants to, that's fine. There's other places you can claim promises, but that's all I really want to say about that. What I want to move in the rest of tonight is beginning at verse 15 and what's known as the Great Commission. Every gospel writer has got their version of the Great Commission. You know, Mark says here in verse 15, and he said unto them, Jesus said unto them, go you into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Matthew's account is probably the most famous one whenever people refer to as the Great Commission. Because I guess because most of them wouldn't say 15, 16, and 17 should be in there. But So if you would though, I want to just look back at Matthew's real quick because I want to make a few comments. So if you turn to Matthew 28, the end, the last chapter in Matthew, beginning in verse 16. And we read there, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, Jesus says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The Great Commission. Why is it called the Great Commission? I think it's appropriately named because to give someone a commission now, commission, we don't have that necessarily in the Greek, but I think the principle is there in what we're reading here in this passage. But it means that you order or you authorize somebody to do something or to produce something. In other words, I order you to do something for me. I order you or authorize you to do something for me. That's what Jesus is doing. In this case, he's saying, I authorize you, I order you to preach the gospel, to baptize. And once that happens, to teach those disciples. Or I'll also, though, I like the idea of authorizing somebody to produce something. Because what happens as the apostles, the disciples, the church, as they go out and do what he says, what he's authorized them to do, what do they produce? The church. That's how it's produced, isn't it? That's how all of us got in here somehow. Somehow we had to hear the gospel, even if it was your parents or a friend. Or in my case, I heard many times from strangers. And that's the way it happens. I like that. So I have this Oxford English Dictionary that I'll look at a lot of times. And it'll give me the origins of words and how they're formed. And this word commission, the Great Commission. Commission comes from two Latin words, com Commission, com, C-O-M, which means with, together, or in association. And mitere, Latin mitere, which means to send. The Great Commission, putting that all together, Jesus authorizes and sends forth his disciples with something. And he also, in association with them, 
He's with them. Both ideas are present. The disciples and us today, it goes on with us here in the church today, we're sent by Jesus with a message. The gospel. That's what we're supposed to be going out of here with into the community and our jobs, where we work, wherever it is, wherever we bump into people, we're to go forth with a message. That's why we're doing what we do here. This is not an end in and of itself, is it? This is supposed to be the beginning where you go out from here. You know, when we meet as a church, we can do evangelism and that can happen. Like I said, I have no problem with evangelistic messages, but the purpose of us gathering here is to worship as saints, as God's people, to learn His Word so that we can Two things, so that we can grow into full stature and to be conformed to the... That's one prong of what we're doing. And the other prong is so that we can learn about Him, how He operates, what we're supposed to do. We can go out and minister and evangelize the world. That's the two purposes of us being together here as a church. Not to just come and learn. Nothing wrong with that, but that should never just be the end in and of itself. It should always have two results that are going two different ways. That's why I had us turn here into Matthew 28 into this because he says, Go ye therefore. There's the sending. There's the sending forth. And he says to teach all nations, teaching them to observe. That's the message, the gospel. We are, first of all, we are ambassadors that are sent, and an ambassador is sent with what? He's to represent a country. He has a message, and that's what we are, and that's what we should be doing. If you would go to 2 Corinthians, I want to look at where Paul talks about being an ambassador there. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. So it's this idea of being sent and with a message, and I think that's what Paul's saying in verse 20. He says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Got a message. As though God did beseech you by us or through us. God is speaking through us them or us or Paul. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. We're his spokesmen, we're his ambassadors, we're his representatives, Christians. Verse 21, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I like to make three points of what it means. This, I think this is helpful of what it meant to be an ambassador in Paul's day and how that applied to him and us. Back in New Testament times, an ambassador, and it's still somewhat the same today, they were highly regarded. But one thing that was never supposed to happen to an ambassador, they weren't to be imprisoned, they weren't to be scorned, they weren't to be mistreated. And if that happened to a country's ambassador that was sent somewhere else, um, if that country was bigger and better than the one it was sent to, there would be retribution that would be paid to that country that treated their ambassador or allowed them to be mistreated in that way. But here's the thing we need to see. We're ambassadors for the king of kings and the greatest kingdom that is and ever will exist. But with Paul, you can look at him. Did that give him any special status in the eyes of the world or any special privileges, (laughs) diplomatic immunity? We read in Ephesians 6.20, he says this, he says, I am an ambassador in chains. That's the way he's treated. He was jailed, he was beaten as God's ambassador, the king's ambassador, and totally dishonored, wasn't he? He was defamed, he had people coming behind, undermining his ministry all the time. And one commentator remarked that other ambassadors in Paul's day, they would wear these gold chains. 
and it would just show, man, we're somebody special, this country we've come from, you know, we've got a lot of riches and honor and dignity. And people would look at him and like, whoa, kind of bow down to him. But Paul's credentials as an ambassador were what? Iron chains that he wore in prison. He's like, that's the chains I'm wearing. I don't have a gold one around my neck. I got them on my hands and feet and stripes on my back is what Paul would say. But here's the thing he's saying. I thought this was good, too. He commends. He says, look, I'm an ambassador and I don't have a gold chain. I've got iron chains. But he says that is nothing to be ashamed of. And he commends in 2 Timothy 1.16, Onesiphorus, that's a mouthful, commends him. He says, I commend him that this brother was not ashamed of me as God's ambassador in these iron chains. But he came and it says he often refreshed me and encouraged me in prison. Does that mean that our heavenly king, the one we represent, doesn't care about how his ambassadors are treated? And he just turns a blind eye to abuse, persecution, and imprisonment? Or what did we just talk about on Sunday in Acts chapter 12? They weren't treating Peter real well. They had him in chains as his ambassador. And what did he do? Those chains fell off and he released him. Does he not care about how us or Paul or Peter or whoever down through the years has been treated as his ambassadors? Herod didn't have a real good end, did he? I mean, he does care. And like we said, God is not mocked. Is not mocked. We are his ambassadors and we're not above our master. Jesus said a disciple, a servant is not above his master. We're not above Paul or any of the saints down through the ages. If you're not faithfully in any of us is the case. If we're not faithfully taking our opportunities to witness and evangelize, well, it's easy. You can get through this country without getting persecuted. It's real easy. But if we are, we will, just like them, we're still going to suffer to be mocked and abuse of different kinds and possibly imprisonment in the future. I mean, that's not really something we have to worry about at this point. I understand that. But when any of that happens, even if it's just somebody you just tell they were your buddy until they found out really what you were all about, and all of a sudden there's this cold shoulder towards you. That's a little bit of persecution there. But what we need to do is we need to, when that happens in whatever form, however mild or however strong, we need to remember that we need to wear those chains, however form they take, in honor. It's an honor. That's the way Paul looked at it. Not a thing to be dishonored. The other thing is in New Testament times, the second thing is in today's, just like it is today with ambassadors, they're usually sent to another country as a sign of friendship and goodwill. They want to establish a relationship or renew friendly relations that were there. Or sometimes an ambassador sent because you want to have an alliance. You want to join forces with somebody. And that is the same purpose that God had in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then us, the apostles, and us now as his ambassadors. It's the same. God was our enemy, and we were his enemies. We were his enemies, and God's... He's saying, I'm sending an ambassador, the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, and then all of the ones after, that's us. We're sent to make reconciliation, to put an end to hostilities. Isn't that what we should be doing? That's our goal when we witness to people. We want to get them reconciled to God, not put them down. The idea is not to judge them. I mean, we were in the same boat, weren't we? I was. How can I sit there and look at somebody that's living in sin and somehow think I'm better than them? I was in the same boat they were. For 21 years of my life. And even now, outside of God's grace, I'd still be there. All of us would, wouldn't we? 
And that's why we look back here. Look what it says here. Let's read it again. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. This is what he would be doing if he was here. He would say this at the end, Be ye reconciled to God, for he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we, the sinners, might be made the righteousness of God in him. And look what he says, go on in chapter 6. There really shouldn't be a break here. He says, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he said, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. And he says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And a person in here that's not saved today, we know this, don't we? There is no guarantee for tomorrow. And that's how God started dealing with me. I'd seen enough Billy Graham. I knew the way I was living. I knew what the truth was. And God started speaking to me. You're playing Russian roulette with your soul. Every day you wake up, you're hoping that when you spin that thing, the bullet's not in there. Because if it is, you're in a heap of trouble for eternity. And that's how God dealt with me as a young man. And it put a fear in my heart that I couldn't shake off as much as I tried. Because my whole thing was, yeah, when I get to be a little bit older and all that, yeah, I'll get my life straightened out then. Because I thought I could. And all of a sudden, God by His Spirit showed me, no, you can't. You're not guaranteed anything. You're going to be the biggest fool of all. And that's the way it is, isn't it? Isn't that the way it is? What we need to see here, this reconciliation that we can bring the people that are in danger of that and letting them know that, hey, today is the day of salvation. You don't know that God's going to have mercy on you 10 years from now. That's a big chance you're taking. But that's a great responsibility we have, isn't it? To be his ambassador. It's a privilege, too. It really is. We can bring that word of life. Reconcile people to God. The third thing in Paul's day... Various cities and the provinces, you know, the way it worked then is they sent their ambassadors to Rome to plead their cases. And they would stream into Rome from all these different areas that they had conquered with their gifts and their gold. And they would kneel before the emperor asking him to do all these special favors for him. Augustus, the Roman emperor Augustus, he would boast... I've got all these people coming from the four corners of my kingdom of Rome. They're coming to me begging, asking me to have mercy, asking me to do all. He he thought that was great. What a contrast. We're talking about God, almighty God, all powerful, almighty God. He doesn't need any of us. He would be just to just wipe us out. He needs us not at all. But that he, instead of making us come to him, Guess what he's done? He's come to us because we never would have come to him. You think how humble God Almighty is if when you look at it that way, you know, he could have said, well, I'll wait for you all to come to me. You know what? He knew that would never happen. That just shows how much love that he has for us because he sent out ambassadors preaching the gospel, pleading with us to be reconciled to him. And like the song we sing, you did not wait for me to draw near to you, but you clothed yourself in frail humanity and you did not wait for me to cry out to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. And I don't know how it was for you all, but for me, he called me more than once. And there's many times I'm like, I'm just ignoring you right now, God. (laughs) He still called me. That's to me, that's just amazing. And that's the way he is. 
Not only do we have a message as ambassadors, we are his ambassadors. Everyone in here that claims to be a Christian, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a six-year-old that's saved, you have a message and a, and a responsibility to share that when you can. Man, woman, child, adult, it doesn't matter. We have a message from the king, and we have not only that, though, it says it's an association. That calm word means with an association sent with. He's with us. Ambassadors in countries, they're kings way back across the sea, maybe. They just got the message and they're on their own. Our Lord, he's given us the message. He's also there with us to deliver the message. We're still in this 2 Corinthians 6. one. He says, we then as workers together with him. He's with us. Because the only effect with our message that we're ever going to have with the message that we have is if he is in us and with us and anointing the words that we say. It's only the Holy Spirit that can convict. Jesus said in John 16, 78, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. He said, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He's saying when he comes unto you, the purpose for that is in you, that's the whole thing he's saying is then through you and what you say, he will bring conviction. It's not going to happen any other way. This is the way God has ordained men to receive salvation is through the preaching of the gospel. He's saying as you faithfully do that, then men will be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We looked at Matthew 28. He says, lo, I am with you always unto the end of the world. That is how Jesus lives in us is through the Holy Spirit. Do we know that? We don't have Jesus and the Holy Spirit in it. Like I said, that's why we read the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He says, all power in heaven and earth is given to me. And he says, because of that, go ye therefore. Because I'm commissioning you, I have all power and authority, I'm giving you that, and not only giving it to you, I'm living in you to make sure it's, it happens. That's what he's saying, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Let's go back to Mark 16, and I would say this, we have a responsibility and we need to meditate and think and see the fact that Jesus sends us forth, not only with a message, but he is also with us to deliver that message in power, and to perform signs. Because look what it says. We're in Mark 16, Mark 16, 15. It says this, And he said unto them, Go you into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. But we're not on our own, because look in verse 20. And they went forth and preached everywhere. They did what he said, but were they by themselves? It says what? The Lord doing what? Working with them and confirming the word that they preached, how? With signs following. It still should be the case, shouldn't it? And if it's not the case, then that's kind of on us, I would say. What is this message? The thing I want to look at, that's the commission. What's the message that we have to give as Christ ambassadors? It's the gospel. That's what we're supposed to preach, the good news. And the good news has to start off with bad news for it to be good news. We have to tell people that, hey, it's not just you. It was me, too. You witness to somebody like you're pouncing on them. It's like, look, I was in your shoes at one time. But we tell them we all are wicked, hell-deserving sinners that are in rebellion against God. 
And if they don't walk away from you then and they're still listening to you, then you can put the big butt in there. And the butt, like I said, the butts in the Bible are great. <laughs> Ephesians 2, it has a great butt. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God in his mercy. And that's what you tell them. Hey, wait a minute. This is what we all deserve, me, you, and everyone. But God in his great love and mercy suffered, died in our place. He rose from the dead. You got to put the resurrection in there. And he will grant forgiveness and eternal life if you will only repent and turn from your selfish life. That's what God's asking them to turn and make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's preaching the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom that's coming. Thy kingdom come. It's not fully here, obviously, but it is here in a lot of ways, isn't it? That kingdom you're preaching to them is there's coming a day, an hour, and a kingdom that will be eternal that is coming where there will be no more curse, no more death, no more suffering, no more sickness, hunger, pain, or sin. And the way to enter that kingdom is there's only one way. You have to repent of your sin. Give your heart and life to obey and follow the king of that kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And tell him you can enter the kingdom now by faith and enjoy its benefits. Don't have to wait. That's what most of the church today is teaching. You have to wait. But no, <laughs> the kingdom of God came when Jesus came. And he said, here's the kingdom of God, and it's manifested through the power of the Holy Spirit, the healing, the deliverance, righteousness, peace, and joy. That's the kingdom of God that we can experience now. We don't have to wait. The gospel is Isaiah 53, forgiveness of sins. He's wounded for our transgressions, bruised or crushed for our iniquities, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the gospel is that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But it's not just that. It's what we have up here on the wall. The removal of the curse. Surely he has borne our pain. Surely. And carried our diseases. That's the full gospel. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all thine iniquity? That has got to be first. But he also goes on to say, who heals all thy diseases. It's all done on the cross. That's the consequence of the sins forgiven. One follows the other. We're talking about confirming the word when crowds or individuals see confirmation of the curse removed through healing and deliverance. Their faith is quickened to believe in forgiveness of sins. When you see something outwardly happen and you see a healing, a deliverance take place, when they hear the message then of forgiveness, well, it must be true. And this risen Savior you're talking about, he must be risen. Because they would say, this is the proof of it. He's the one that performed these miracles. We didn't do it. We don't have that kind of power, the apostles would say. For example, the man born of four, lying on a cot, it says, sick of palsy. He's paralyzed. They let the man down in front of Jesus. And he doesn't say to the man, it's obvious what they brought him for. But does he tell that guy when he's first laid in front of him, arise, take up thy bed? Is that the first thing he says to him? The first thing he says to him is, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Because why does he say that first? Because that is what all of us need more than anything else. That's what people need is forgiveness of sins. That is what separates us from God is sin. Healing or lack of it doesn't separate us from God, does it? 
It's the fact we need forgiveness. And the scribes are sitting there listening to him say that, and they can't believe their ears. And they're talking within themselves, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And Jesus asked him, he says, why are you reasoning this way in your hearts? The Holy Spirit showed him what they were thinking. Which is easier to say to the sick of palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk? Well, we all know it's easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, because how do you prove that? How do you demonstrate that? It's invisible that what takes place there. It's harder in the natural, even though it was, in a sense, harder for Jesus that he had to die on the cross for sins to be forgiven. But it's harder to say, rise up and walk, because you either have that or you don't. The other you really couldn't prove. And he tells them, so that you may know, know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He's saying, this is how you're going to know that the gospel of forgiveness is true. It says, he said unto the sick of palsy, I say unto you, arise, take up your bed, go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went forth before them all insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God. So let me ask you something. Why are many of the miracles that take place in the New Testament in there to confirm the word that was preached? We just read that in Mark 16, 20. And what is the word? The word of forgiveness. I mean, obviously the word that he's taken our pains and sickness, but he's concerned to meet needs. He was. It says his compassion went out when he would see lepers and those in need. That's clearly there. I'm not taken away from that at all. But if you'll carefully read the book of Acts, miracles and healings were used to confirm the word of forgiveness. That is the primary message, is to preach repentance and forgiveness. When you see a sinner, that is not the time to start throwing all of the additional things that we believe. That's not the time to do that, is it? They need to repent and be forgiven. When Jesus appeared to the eleven after his resurrection and he gave the great commission in Luke 24, here's what it says. It says, Thus it is written, he says, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer to rise from the dead the third day. And here's what he said, and that repentance for or unto the forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance as the basis for the forgiveness of sins, that should be our message to sinners. That should be what our message is. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. They're speaking in tongues. They're hearing these languages. The crowds gather around, and they're like, these men are full of new wine. That must be what's going on here. And Peter tells them, wait a minute. It's just noon. People don't get drunk here at noon. That only happens in America. But what he tells them, he says, this, what you're hearing, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he goes on to tell him the reason this outpouring happened is because this one that you with wicked hands have crucified and was buried, that God has raised him from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand of God. When he did that, he's poured out this spirit that you now, he told them, that you now see and hear. This is what he goes on to say. No, assuredly, that God has made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
And it says, now when they heard him, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That is the climax of the day. Because that is where God has been trying to get this group of people. Brought them to the point of conviction through the preaching of Peter, through everything that he said, through what they've seen, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and his answer to what shall we do, he tells them what? He says, repent. That's what you need to do. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is the first goal when we're ministering to a lost person. Repentance and baptism. Now, we know baptism doesn't save, but that would be the next step. Men, in other words, need to see that they're sinners and they need forgiveness and that they need to commit their entire life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if they don't do that, it talks about they can be performing signs, wonders, and miracles in Matthew 7 and you'll still perish. You can be healed and perish if you don't repent. Repentance is not a popular message today at all. Not a popular message. It never has been. But listen, Noah's message, when he was walking up into the ark before he stepped in there, it was not something good is going to happen to you today. That wasn't his message. And Jeremiah was not put into the pit for preaching, I'm okay, you're okay. That isn't the way it happened. And Daniel didn't go into the lines then by telling people, possibility thinking will move mountains. That's not why they put him in the lines then. And John the Baptist wasn't put in prison and didn't have his head took off because he preached, smile, God loves you. And the two prophets in the book of Revelation during the tribulation, they will not be killed because they preached, now is your best life, your best life now. That's not the way it is. Instead, what was the message of all of those men? It's one word, one simple word. Repent. Repent. That was Jeremiah used that all through the book of Jeremiah. Repentance is a main theme. That's the gospel preached from the beginning of Acts unto the end. I'm not going to go through all of it, but in Acts 3, it's like I was saying, when the lame man was healed... Peter told the Jews the man was healed by the name and power of the one that they had denied and slew on the cross, Jesus Christ. As a result of that, they're all gathered around. Did Peter just go into expounding on this is divine healing and here's how it all works? That's not what he did. That miracle brought all these people in. He used that to say this power that was demonstrated here, just like Jesus. He's saying, here's how you can know that when I tell you about this is where forgiveness is found, you can know it because that same one that healed this man, that healed the man sick of palsy, is the one that is telling you this is the way you can be forgiven. Because this is what he told them. He said, his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. He says, and now, brethren, I know that through ignorance you did it, as also did your rulers. And then he told them, repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, 
when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, who before was preached unto you. The healing of that lame man, that blessed that lame man. Nothing wrong with that, is there? God used that to confirm the message that Peter preached, that you need to repent. Repent ye and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That is the greatest need anyone ever has. And that's what happened. And <laughs> he's saying, this one that healed this person will grant you forgiveness and life if only you'll repent. And my question then is, when is the last time we've told somebody that they need to repent to have life? Because Jesus says in Luke 13, he told that crowd there, you think the ones that tower fell on, they were bigger sinners than anyone else? That's why that happened to them? He says, that's not it. They're no bigger sinner than you are. But he said, told them twice, unless you repent, you will perish. That's what Jesus told them. And that's what we need to tell others in a nice way. Don't we? Because that's what he says. And when they came to Antioch, Peter, I think, talking about Cornelius, he says that God has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. So we want to see people have life and eternal life. That's the only way it's going to happen is if they repent. So we have to let them know that, that they need to repent. In Acts 13, when Paul went on his first missionary journey, went into the synagogue, they said, have you got a word, Paul? He's like, I always got a word. Just give me the pulpit. I'll stand up here and preach. And that's what he did. And he gave them a summary of the history of Israel from the time of Abraham through David. And he showed Jesus was of the seed of David, that he was slain, buried, and raised from the dead. And then he said this after he said all of that. He says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him... All that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law. That's his first missionary journey. And the first thing he tells them is, you need to repent and the forgiveness of sins is offered through this man. That's the message. And like I said, you go all through the book of Acts and study these sermons that they would preach. And what did he tell them on Mars Hill in Athens? You need to quit celebrating Christmas. You know, divorce and remarriage. That's not what he preached. What did he say? God commends all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by this man that I've told you he has raised from the dead. Our first goal when we witness the people is to see them brought to a conviction of sin. And that happens when we preach the word through the power of the Holy Spirit that is in us. And that includes praying and that forgiveness only comes from repentance, not that you said a prayer at some point. Amen? I did a lot of street work, and for years we went in and did evangelism on Sunday afternoon for about three hours going cell to cell to cell. And I would try to figure out if somebody was already a Christian, okay, well then, if I seen from what they were saying, a lot of them would profess to be Christians, and they weren't any more Christian than the man on the moon. So you go to step one with them, but somebody's a Christian, well, maybe they need the baptism. Maybe they need deliverance. So maybe with them, you would talk there. But most people I'm meeting in prison, they're not Christians. So I didn't start in with them on speaking in tongues or 
divorce and remarriage, like I said, or Christmas. That's the type of teaching that is for people that have had their lives and their hearts changed and made Jesus the Lord of their life. To everyone else, that sounds like crazy talk for the most part, doesn't it? You begin where Romans begin. You begin with the law. Because through the law, that's the purpose of the law, is to bring men to Christ, the schoolmaster. But Paul says through the law is the knowledge of sin. Because everyone in a general way knows they're sinners. But when you question, have you ever told a lie? And what does that make you? A liar. It's really hard for people to say that. I'm a liar. Because that's like a bad thing to say. You get them to say that. You know, it's not just that you haven't committed adultery, and most of them will admit they have. It's the look of lust is adultery. Anger is the same as murder. And God is going to judge you as you're talking to a person by the thoughts and the intents of your heart. And then you ask them, because here's what the ally that you have, and that is they have a conscience and the law is written on their conscience and they can't get away from it. And when you ask them, have you ever lusted? Do you look at pornography? Do you lust after women? And their conscience is saying, yeah, I do. And Jesus says that's the same as adultery. And a lot of times I'm like, here, would you read this for me in Matthew chapter 5? What does he say if you do that as a practice? Where will you end up? And it's pretty simple English. I don't know that I ever had one of them yet. That, so I don't know. They would all say, you're going to go to hell. I'm like, well, I didn't write it. That's what he said. You go through the law with them. Are you going to be innocent or guilty on the day of judgment if you die today because you don't know that you will? So here's this guy that at first he's got his chest out. Now I know I'll go to heaven. I'm good. And I did this or that. I confessed. I said this prayer way back when. And you go through the law and they can't get away from their conscience. And then you ask them, you're going to be innocent or guilty. And their conscience, almost everyone guilty. So would it be heaven or hell? It'd be hell. And then the next question is, does that bother you? And if they say yes, then you give them the good news. Here's what God in his love and mercy has done. That I deserved, you deserved this punishment, the cross. And explain to them. And I mean, I've had, I don't know how many guys say, you know, I've never had it explained to me that way before. Tell them he'll offer them forgiveness if they'll repent and explain what it means because most people think repentance means to ask for forgiveness. And you have to say, no, it's not that. That's what I was taught as a Catholic. Repentance means you're walking one way, you're doing what you want to do. And repentance means you turn your back on that and now it's, Lord, what will you have me to do? I'm through living a life of lust and anger and lying. And on the basis of that, when your intention is to obey him, he'll grant you forgiveness and everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's good news. How serious is the fact that we're ambassadors and we're given a commission and a message to preach? Look at verse 16. Look what it says there. It says, you go preach that gospel to every creature. He that believes will listen to what you say and believes and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believes not shall be what? I mean, that is serious, isn't it? But guess what? If they never hear it, they're going to be damned for sure. So there's eternal consequences to what we do. And I want to end by just saying that God will use you and I if we'll only ask him to and live obediently to what we just read. I think a lot of times in our church through the years, we felt like that's optional. 
that if some people want to go out and evangelize or they're, they're just zealous in that way, and I've said this before, but it's not optional for us as a Christian, is it? We can't excuse ourselves. It's the Great Commission is given to all of us. But if you would, turn to Acts 11. And we looked at this Sunday, but I want to look at it again. God will use all of us if we're willing. Back in Acts 8, it tells us there that because of the persecution of Saul of Tarsus, the church was scattered and went everywhere preaching the word anywhere they went. But look here what it says in Acts 11 in verses 19 through 21. It says in Acts eleven nineteen. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch. And like I said, that word preaching there means talking, talking the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And look at verse 21. It says the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Isn't that our great commission promise? He says he went with them as they preached the word, confirming the word with signs following. That's Mark 16, 20. Isn't that what he says in Matthew 28, 20? Lo, I am with you always. So he's saying the hand of the Lord, verse 21, look at it. The hand of the Lord was with them. He's with them, in them. And because of that, a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. God will do that for us. We may not have multitudes, but to say you can never see somebody saved in your entire Christian life, I think we could do better than that, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I really do. Uh, let me just say this in closing. I don't know how many of you know F.F. F. Bosworth. He wrote the book Christ the Healer, and somehow yesterday I ran across this link. I think they're the only messages out there that are available to be listened to. And there's four messages. One of them doesn't work, but the other three do. And I want to talk about this some next week. You are struggling with believing God for healing? Listen to these messages and you will be encouraged. Won't you, Terry and Greg? It's infectious. Because this guy's saying, look, the problem's not that people don't believe God's able. They have trouble and struggle with the fact he is willing. He's saying that's where the rubber meets the road. You've got to know that he's willing. And just listen to it. If you want the link, text me. I'll be gladly send it to you. Or do a Google search under Bosworth. And it's this Brother Mel has got a website where he's got that on there. But what I wanted to say was, this is what impressed me. When you listen to this man Bosworth, he is in his 80s. And this guy has been spirit-filled since he was in his 20s. And they're telling him, hey, you know, we're going to give you a day off so you can rest. He's like, I'm not tired. He said, I don't need a day off. I would rather be out preaching the gospel, which is what he did. But the one thing that stuck out to me was he's over in Africa. And this guy has seen thousands upon thousands of people miraculously healed. But he said, as he sees these people over there that have never heard the gospel, the burden on his heart was they will perish. And he said he would cry over that fact. For him, the healings that took place were just a confirmation that these people can trust the same God and Savior that had the power to perform these miracles to bring them forgiveness and eternal life. And that's the way it was. I mean, that was what his heart was to see these people brought to repentance. Amen. And that should be our heart when we meet people. You know, you got to think about that. You have this guy come to fix your refrigerator. Just some guy fixing the refrigerator. This is a soul right here. And you've got an opportunity. You can talk to him in a nice way. And it may only be for a couple minutes. Get some tracks. Have a track. Say, here, 
brother, just read this if you have a chance. But most people will. You don't know what can happen. Amen? You've got to look for opportunities and see what God can do. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, once again. We just see that we can trust your word. We can trust these verses in Mark that they are your word, Lord. And also, Lord, I just ask you'll put on all of our hearts that we have a responsibility to fulfill this commission that you've given us, this message that you've given us as your ambassadors, and that you do live within us, Lord, and you live within us in the purpose that you want to work with us. You want to anoint the words that we speak to sinners to bring them to conviction, to bring them to repentance, to bring them to a knowledge of you that they can be reconciled with you, Lord. That's why you came. And I ask that you'll give us that attitude, not that we want to avoid talking to people, Lord, but this is our opportunity to bring reconciliation. I just ask you to impress that on all of us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.